notes and just follow along this morning. This is my second message in the new series I started on the book of Philippians. And somebody truly has said that the book of Philippians is a book and it is a letter about joy. Joy in the worst circumstances of life, how to have joy. Last week, last week, we looked at what the Apostle Paul wrote while he was in prison. He spent a number of years in prison, two years in Caesarea, and then he finds himself in prison in Rome. And during this particular time, he was chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And yet, despite all the difficulties that he faced, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. He said, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. What was Apostle Paul's secret? How could he stay so positive in prison? And how could he triumph over his problems and delight in his difficulties and stay so happy and positive and joyful in spite of the fact that things had not turned out the way he wanted them to? He imagined himself going to Rome, but he never imagined himself in prison. He imagined himself entering Rome and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and hundreds and thousands of people were coming to Christ. He envisioned that. He imagined that. But instead, he finds himself in prison, chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How could he stay so positive? Well, he discovered that life does not have to be perfect for us to be happy. He discovered that. Often we say, well, if I didn't have these set of problems over here, if I didn't have these problems over here, then I would be happy. But the problem is, is that once you get rid of those set of problems over here and over here, you get a whole new set of problems. And Paul says, despite the problems of life, I've learned to be joyful and I've learned to be happy. That's all review from last week. Today we're going to turn a corner and we're going to look at chapter 2 of Philippians, this letter on joy. How to be joyful even in the face of conflict with others. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I'm asking that you'd help me to share this word and make it applicable as always to our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for those songs that our praise team led us in this morning. We're reminded so much about you and what you've done for us and what you want to do for us. We're mindful of the eternal perspective. The most important thing in life is not what happens to us, but how we look at the things that happen to us, our perspective. And Lord, we tell you that it is a challenge. It is a challenge. When we face problems, physical problems, relationship problems, financial problems, when we face all of these problems of various kinds, we tell you honestly, Lord, it's difficult at times to have the eternal perspective. But we ask that you would continue to give that to us. It's not the problem. It's how we look at it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I heard about a minister. I heard about a minister this last week, and this minister was on his deathbed. He was on his deathbed, and he was dying, and and he called two members of his church in. It happened to be a lawyer and happened to be an IRS agent to his bedside. And as they entered his room, he said, would you please uh, sit on one side, and would you please sit on the other side? And uh, they were honored to be there. And they said, sir, why did you choose us to be here 
as you're dying. And this is what he said. He said, the minister mustered up his strength and he said, you know, Jesus died between two sinners and that's how I want to go. That's how I want to go. We're all sinners. Whether we're an IRS agent or whether we're a lawyer, we've all sinned. And the Bible said that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. No matter what profession or no matter what job that we have, the Scripture says that we're all sinners. And one of the causes, one of the causes of unhappiness is the inability to get along with other people. We've all had conflicts. But it's the inability to get along with other people. How do you get along with a person that is very, very difficult to get along with? The Apostle Paul had so-called Judaizers. He had these people that were very, very legalistic in his life. He had these individuals that were giving him a bad time even while he's in prison. He had people that were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and putting him down. And he said, so what? What's the matter? They're still preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he had people that he had conflict with. And we often have people that we have conflict with. And one of the causes, again, of unhappiness is the inability to get along with other people. You know, I've read a, def- a number of different books on leadership, and I've read a, nof- a number of different articles. And almost every single book I've read on leadership and on uh, and these articles have basically said the same thing. They have said that the success of a person on his job, his or her, his or her job, the success to be successful, one of the key ingredients is the ability to get along with other people. Far more than knowledge, far more than uh, the technical savviness, is the ability to get along with people. That is seems to be the predominant number one uh trait of a person that's going to do well on their job is the ability to get along with other people. So one of the major causes of unhappiness that the Apostle Paul addresses this morning in our world, you might want to say, is strained relationships. Conflict is a killjoy. And how do you handle conflict in your life? You know, unity truly is an ingredient for success and fulfillment in life. And to have a success, successful business, uh, the, the, the employees must work together. To have a successful football team, we would all agree that they must, the players must work together. To have a successful government, the, the Congress and the President must cooperate. To have a successful family, all the members of that family must work together. And to have a successful church, we must also work together. Very little is accomplished in life by ourselves. And success is never, ever a one-man show. Very little is is accomplished in life without some sort of cooperation and unity. When there is unity, however, there is tremendous power and potential. The problem is, is that we don't always get along with other people. How do you reduce conflict and how do you increase unity and cooperation? That's the question. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about how to have unity, and he deals with this particular subject. I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 with me one more time. Notice, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, united or one with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, notice, then make my what? Make my joy complete by being like-minded, 
having the same love, being one in spirit and one in purpose. The Apostle Paul here gives us four expressions of unity. Four expressions of unity. He says, be like-minded, be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit, and be one in purpose. Be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit, and be one in purpose. And I believe the Apostle Paul really outlines for us here five practical steps in order to have unity and oneness, to get along with other people. First of all, I believe he's talking about being like-minded. He's really talking about diffusing what I call competition. Diffusing competition. There's nothing wrong with healthy competition. There's nothing wrong with a team playing another team. But the problem often is, is that we are competing with the same members on the same team, the same people that we compete with in the business that we're involved in. We're not to compete with one another. We're to compete with old Snaggletooth, you might want to say, in the church. Uh, and, and we're to compete with, old, uh, with, uh, with all those uh, uh, cohorts of his. We're in competition with Satan and, Sna- and Snaggletooth in those courts, but we're not to be in competition with one another. If we have a business, we're not, we're not, we're, everyone's supposed to be on the same page to, together. We're not to be competing with other individuals. Uh, uh, we're to compete with other people outside of other businesses. Now, he's talking about diffusing competition. I want you to look at verse 3 again with me. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Another paraphrase says, never act for motives of rivalry. Another paraphrase says, there must be no competition among you. Now, diffuse means to reduce the tension. It means to reduce the strain. It means to reduce the anger, you might want to say. Again, in the Phillips translation, or or, a paraphrase, it says, never act for motives of rivalry. Now, when we were kids, we had sibling rivalry, and I don't understand how that all works, and I don't understand how it happens. I just know that if you have one, more than one child in your family, typically there's going to be so-called sibling rivalry. If Johnny, the oldest, gets an A, then Sally, the youngest, wants to get an A+. If Bobby is involved in some sort of sport, then Steve comes along, and Steve wants to excel even more than Bobby did. And we have what's called sibling rivalry. And the Apostle Paul is saying here there should be no rivalry if you're all in, all in the same team together. If you're all in the same family, there should be no rivalry. If you're all in the same church, there should be no rivalry, no competition with one another. And this is what he's saying here, I believe. Um, but sometimes when you get a little older, instead of competing with your brothers and sisters, uh, it becomes a little more sophisticated. Instead of being outright, you get a little, little bit more sophisticated in often how we have this rivalry with other people. And often we, we find ourselves where we get in arguments or we get in dif- differences of other people and we find ourselves having to out-argue. You ever been there? You have to out-argue the other person or you have to outmaneuver, or you have to be smarter than the other person because after all, you're right and they're wrong. And we find ourselves doing this. And the Apostle Paul says there should be no competition. There should be no rivalry. We're all on the same team. And this has to be uh, utmost in our mind because he said we're to promote unity. We're to promote uh, oneness. Now, he's saying the first cause of conflict is competing desires. And unfortunately, it's real and it happens 
we live in a very competitive world, and we're to diffuse that competition. A number of years ago, I read that former President Ronald Reagan had on his desk a plaque, and the plaque basically read this. It's amazing what can be accomplished when a person doesn't stand up and take credit for something that they did. In other words, when they realize that it was more than the individual, it was the team that made it a success. Without, without having to stand up and draw recognition to ourselves that we accomplished something, we recognize that it's not just me, but it's the, the team. It's, the, it's, it's all of us working together. I believe the second thing that the Apostle Paul talks about here is, is that we need to delete conceit. <laughs> delete conceit. One of the, one of the, in other words, he's saying get rid of the pride issue. Don't just do things to show off our ego just to gain praise or glory from others. Look at verse 3 again with me. Verse 3. He says, do nothing, notice that word nothing, out of selfish ambition. Another translation says, out of vain conceit. A paraphrase says, don't do anything from a cheap desire to boast, and somebody has said an egotist, an ego, egotist. I can't even say, it. an egotist, tist, is an eye specialist. His eyes are too close together, and all they can see is himself. Now the Bible says pride goes before a fall. Remember, Scripture says that pride goes before a fall. So we want to delete the conceit. Somebody has said this. <laughs> the person, the person who gets too big for their britches will eventually be exposed in the end. They'll be eventually ex exposed in the end. Proverbs 13:10. Pride only breeds quarrels. And the first cause of conflict is competing desires, and the second cause of conflict is personal pride. And often when I get an ego problem, and I refuse to admit it and back up when I'm wrong. Um, I attended a very small high school, not as small as John Day, but almost. I think in my graduating class I had 85 people in my senior year of high school. And I'll never forget, I was a freshman, and I had, auto, uh, excuse me, I had a metal shop class with Mr. Bo Leonard, who happened to be the varsity basketball coach at the same time. And I'd go in his class, and often we'd get our work done, and then we have lots of time to shoot the bull, you know, just talk and converse and stuff. And I always liked to pick his brain because he was a good basketball coach. And as a freshman, I'd ask him questions. And I found out that our small high school varsity basketball team, the boys, they were going to be playing a big city team from the San Francisco Bay Area, specifically San Jose. And this particular basketball team, uh, came from a high school that had 3,000 students. 3,000 students versus a school that had less than 400 kids. Talk about a David and Goliath type of athletic contest. And the whole community was talking about about this big city team that was coming up, this larger team. And uh, that night, about 7 o'clock, you know, they had the preliminary warm-ups, and those guys ran out there, and I kid you not, they were 6 or 8 inches taller than the tallest person on the high school basketball team that I went to. And during warm-ups, they made baskets all around the hoop from every particular place that you can imagine, and they were dunking the basketball 
They were dunking the basketball. We're talking about a half a dozen of these kids who could dunk the basketball. They had hair on their face. They looked, they looked like they were five or six years older. They looked that they they'd flunked, you know, flunked out of school three or four times. They were so physically imposing and such a better team, skilled in their skills. You could tell the better shooters, better dribblers, etc., etc. I never gave my high school basketball team, the school I went to, the varsity team, I never gave them one chance in a million years. But guess what happened? The first quarter started, and uh, it was pretty close. And then the second quarter started, and our team began to pull away a little bit. The third quarter started, and our team did begin to pull away a little bit. By the end of the fourth quarter, we were blowing those guys out. And on Monday morning, I went up to Mr. Leonard, our auto shop teacher, and I said, Mr. Leonard, I couldn't believe it. And I, and I reiterated everything that I just got through telling you. They were bigger. They were better position-wise. Uh, they could shoot better. They could dribble better. Everything else. And I said, Mr. Leonard, what happened? How come we beat them? You probably already know the answer. I'll never forget it. He said, Ron, they were more talented. They were better. But they played that basketball game as individuals. And we played as a team. They were full of egotists and full of people that were very, very self-centered and did not share the ball. They hogged the ball. And whereas... Our team played a team like a team. So the Apostle Paul is saying here, we need to diffuse competition with one another. We're all on the same team, and we need to delete conceit. You want to get along with other people, you need to swallow your pride often. Number three, decrease criticism. Notice the the second or third part of verse three. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, what does he say? But in humility, in humbleness, consider others better than your Selves. Now, when he mentions that word better, he's not talking about people who are superior. Who are superior. He means worthy of respect. Write that down. It's not superior. He means worthy of respect. And what he's saying is, is that all those people that you are encounter, whether they're children, whether they're adults, whether they're teenagers, whether they're middle-aged, or whether they're elderly people, or whether they're a crabby next-door neighbor, or whether they're a crabby work associate, they are worthy of our respect. Everybody is worthy of our respect. Even the drunk down the street, we treat them with respect. This is what he's saying. Right here. Worthy of respect. He says that you're not to put people down. You're to treat them with respect. Now that's a radical concept. Treat others with respect. Treat people who don't even deserve to be treated with respect. Treat people uh, and and honor them and lift them up. You might want to say even more than our, our own self. This is a difficult, difficult concept in our world and in our society. And, and he says, decrease criticism because when you're critical of another person, you're thinking often that you're better than the other person. But if it wasn't for God's grace, there you go likewise. If it wasn't for God's grace, you might be that person that you're having a difficult time with. If it wasn't for God's grace, you might be that alcoholic. You might be that drug addict. You might be that person that can't keep a job if it wasn't for God's grace. So he's saying respect other 
people, no matter what station and no matter where they're at in life, respect everybody. And, uh, and, and it's so difficult not to be critical of other people. But he says, don't be critical of other people. Now, somebody said this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather not thinking of yourself at all. Not think of yourself at all. Your focus isn't on you. It's not on what you think less. It's, it, it, uh, 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 it's not that you think less of yourself. It's just that you don't think about yourself at all. Your focus is on other people. The person who thinks that he is humble often is not. The humble person doesn't even know know it because he's focusing on everybody else. Now, I want you to listen to James chapter 4 verses 11 and 12. And I'm not sure if this is in your message notes, but here it is. You can write it down and you can look at it later. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. There's only one lawgiver and there's only one judge. Who are we to judge our neighbor? Anytime I judge somebody, anytime I look down my nose at somebody, I'm playing God. Because I don't know how far they've walked. I don't know the conditions that they've walked in. I don't know the shoes that they've walked in. I don't know the motives. I don't know what's happening in their life. And the Bible says that we're not to judge other people. And often when I'm critical of another person, that's what I'm doing. I'm criticizing them. I'm saying things about them. I, 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 by my actions and by the things that come out of my mouth, I am putting them down. And did you know it can become a habit? Did you know that you can become a very, very critical person? The way you look at life and the way you operate life, and pretty soon, all the things that are coming out of your mouth. Well, did you know so-and-so is like this, and so-and-so is like this, and whatever it may be? And, and it can become a habit. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, decrease criticism. Don't play God. Don't judge a person. You don't know their motives. You don't know their background. But the problem is, is that it's fun to criticize. Let's be honest about it. It is fun to criticize. It is easy to become a critical person. And the reason why is, is it because, the reason why that people are often critical is it because, let's, let's be honest about it, it makes us feel a little bit more superior. It makes us feel more superior. We think that we build ourselves up by putting another person down. And the Bible says the exact opposite. We don't build ourselves up by putting another person down. If you want to get rid of conflict in our life, any conflict you have, decrease the criticism. Your, your daughter-in-law, your son-in-law, your son and your daughter and that next-door neighbor and that person that you work with, they don't always do things that you would like them to do. They don't always say things that you would like for them to say. But does that give you the right to put them down constantly and to criticize them? And did you know that if you're critical uh, toward them, they won't have anything to do with you? Stop being critical toward those you love and start loving them and expressing affection toward them and close your mouth up. It, it, you know, just zip it all up. He says, Paul says, decrease the criticism. I believe he's talking about that here. So the third cause of conflict is, is when I fail to value other people when I treat them with less respect than they deserve. One time, I felt really, really awkward around an individual I had just met. The only thing I can say about it is, is that they were a cold fish. 
Have you ever met a cold fish? Not very warm, cold, almost uh, almost arrogant in the way in which they met me and, and uh, were meeting other people around me. Just cold and arrogant. And I got, I got to be honest, I begin to judge that individual thinking, what is their problem? But then I found out that this man had lost his wife just six months earlier in a tragic accident. And my whole perspective changed. He was depressed and grieving the loss of his spouse of 25 years years who died all of a sudden in a tragic accident don't judge and don't be so critical this is what the apostle paul is saying here i i I want you to um notice number four here he's talking about uh here demonstrate consideration demonstrate consideration look at verse four with me each of you should look should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of other people. And um, he's saying, don't just be interested in your, in your own affairs. Now, I want you to circle that word look, if you have the NIV translation there. I think it's translated other ways. But we get the English word scopus, where we get the word uh, telescope, and it's like somebody's scope on the back of a, uh, on the top of a rifle. And and this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying, you want to focus on the other person. You want to pay attention to the other person's needs. You want to pay attention to the other person's needs. And and in marriage, this is very important, as we know. It's very important to focus on the other person's needs. In any relationship in life, it's important to focus on the other person. We have to pay attention to the other person's needs. Now, this is what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says. It says, Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Did you know the way that we treat our spouse will affect our prayer life? This is what the scripture says. This is what Peter says. He says, be considerate of each other so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's talking about demonstrating empathy and sympathy and consideration for the other person. So the fourth cause of conflict is is when I'm insensitive to other people's needs. Are you saying, Pastor Ron, are you saying that I cannot have a wholesome discussion with someone and that I can't disagree with them? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you can't talk about subjects. I'm not saying that you can't express your opinion. I'm just saying that after you express your opinion, don't go on and be argumentative. Don't go on and fight about your position. And don't be critical of that person after they've expressed their opinion and it's different from yours because they're entitled to their opinion as well. The moment that we cross the line and we try to argue and try to manipulate and try to do all these things, we've gone too far. We have to be considerate of other people. 
The fifth thing that I see in this particular passage of Scripture is, is that Paul says we need to have and we need to develop Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Notice in verse 5, what does he say? Your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, Jesus was a master in his relationships with others. He is the model that we are to follow. He is the great example. We're to have the same attitude of Jesus Christ. What was Jesus' attitude? Well, look at verse 6 with me. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he did not demand his own rights. He did not demand his own rights. The person who yields their rights to God gets God as a defender of his or her rights. God is the one that will defend our rights. We don't have to, we don't have to uh, go on and on and on and, and uh, trying to get a person's attention or whatever it may be and trying to win an argument. The Bible says that God's going to defend our rights. If we give our rights to God, if we give ourselves to God, he says he's going to defend us, and we don't have to defend ourselves. So he did not demand his own rights. Look at verse 7 with me. Notice, we're talking about the attitudes that Jesus had. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, Jesus had a servant's attitude. Jesus said, I didn't come to, come to be served, but I came to serve. Look at, um, look at verse 8 with me. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. In other words, he was willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of, the, of, of other people. I think the real cause of conflict is often living life apart from Christ. Did you know the scripture says, the scripture indicates in Ephesians 4.3, do your best to preserve the unity which the Spirit gives by the peace that binds you together. The Spirit of Jesus Christ brings unity in families and businesses and in the church. It is Jesus Christ that brings unity. What am I talking about here? If you had a room full of pianos, and all of these pianos were out of tune. There is one simple instrument that a piano tuner would use. And that's a tuning fork. The tuning fork is what brings all of those divergent sounds in all these pianos out of whack together. We have a cross here. This cross represents what Jesus Christ did and how he died for our sins and how he resurrected again. Everybody kneels at the foot of the cross. We have unity, not because we look alike necessarily, not necessarily because we dress alike, not because we like the same foods, not because we all like the same political, pers political persuasions, but because of Jesus Christ and because of our commitment to Christ. Christ is the one that brings us together in the spirit of unity and oneness. I've often had people say to me over the years, the only way that I could stay with my honorary spouse is because of what Christ 
has done for me. The only way that I could forgive that person who did treated me so terribly and awfully is because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. The only way that I can get along with that difficult person to get along with is because I'm a Christian person and I believe in reconciliation and I believe in forgiveness. It is the Spirit of Christ that brings unity and oneness to us as Christian individuals and people. I have to tell you that this is the most difficult thing to do and to talk about because I have worked where you have worked in a secular job while pastoring a church and I've ran across some very, very honorary people. Honorary people. I was in a construction technology program at Delta Community College a number of years ago, pastoring a church, going to school, being bivocational, traveling all the way down to Stockton, an hour and 15 minutes one way, and then coming back at the end of the school day. And our instructor was a great guy, enjoyed him, enjoyed the class, enjoyed the class members, but we had one guy in that particular class that was my age, and he was an absolute know-it-all. Ever met a know-it-all? He knew everything about everything. He knew all about construction. He knew all about algebra. He knew all about physics. He knew all about space. He knew every subject. He was a Jeopardy walking star. You know what I'm saying? He knew everything about everything. And it just so happened that our instructor said, about three-fourths of the way to class, he goes, I've got this assignment. I want you to go out in the soccer field out here, and I want you to get some uh, board and bat, and I want you to get the tripod out, and I want you to do the preliminary work for making a foundation. It's got to be six inches off the ground. It's got to be 25 by 25, and it has to be absolutely on. Absolutely, All those corners have to be absolutely square. And it just so happened that uh, I'd been practicing that. And it just so happened that I had read up on that and I had I'd been practicing it on my own and, and, I, and, I, and I read the textbook and I knew step by step by step exactly what I was supposed to do and how to do it, et cetera, et cetera. I was so knowledgeable, I was going to go out there and I was going to just, just, we we're just going to get a perfect score. So I said to the young guy, and I said to the guy my age, hey, this is, this is how we want to do it. Here's a great plan. We can do this and this and this and this and this. And guess what happened? Right away, the guy said, no, we don't want to do it that way. We want to do it this way and this way and this step and this step. And this step, this is the way that we're going to do it. And I said, no, it's not. And he said, yes, it is. And I failed. I failed that day. I did. And I have to tell you, I failed. And I blew it bad. And the guy stomped off got mad, left the class. 
I was right. I was. But I was wrong. I was wrong. Because of my attitude and because of the things that, and how I said the things I said, I said them. So the next day in class, he's over on this other side of the room. I'm on this side of the room. And it was as though something grabbed a hold of my shirt and I'm dragging, my feet are dragging and as though the Spirit of God was pulling me by the front of my shirt. I didn't even want to go over there. I said, no, 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 no. And I just found myself right over where he was at at his desk. Right there. And I apologized. And I asked him to please forgive me. And I didn't go into the I didn't go into the whole thing. I was right, you were wrong. I wanted to. <laughs> I just said, please forgive me. I, I'm sorry that I did not listen to you. And the guy looked up back at me and uh and he said something smart, smart alecky. Oh, that was so hard. <laughs> And I just walked away. But see, because of Christ, because of Christ in me, and because of what the Lord asked me to do, I had to do that. I had to. And it's not always easy, and we don't always have perfect performance. And it doesn't mean that we you know, always say the right things. Don't you find yourself backing up sometimes? I find myself backing up often. Would you bow your heads with me, please? <clears throat>